Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. Is revival happening now? Chuck Gerard, co-founder and lead singer of the group Love Song, explains his thoughts in light of his experiences in the Jesus movement and beyond. In this insightful interview, Chuck shares stories from the early days of the Jesus movement, compares and contrasts today's culture with that day, and gives some perspective on what God is doing. As you listen, you'll laugh, be inspired, and have your awe of God elevated to a new level. After the episode, consider leaving a review and follow us on your favorite streaming service. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. Well, Chuck, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, Doug. Good to hear your voice. Likewise, it's been quite a few years. I was so excited when I saw the movie uh, Jesus Revolution and brought back a lot of memories obviously. And then, of course, the depiction of Love Song and, and you in the in the movie reminded me of so many things. And even the great aftermath and the tremors and the aftershocks of the Jesus Revolution that many of us were impacted by. And of course, you had such a huge impact in my personal life. In fact, I was talking to Lee Grady, who said, he goes back and listen to all your songs, including like, Sometimes Hallelujah. Of course, that, that came back to mind as well to me. And of course, our mutual friend Bubba Chambers from Blessed Hope and the Hope of Glory, and he was hoping to to be on, but he's actually traveling right now, and he just thinks the world of you. And again, thank you, Chuck, for being with us. And let me kind of give a brief bio for everybody, for maybe the younger generation, and that is that Chuck Gerard is a singer, songwriter, recording artist, and worship leader. For those of us that have been around quite some time, he is one of the primary pioneers of the contemporary Christian music scene. He was the co-founder and lead singer of the group Love Song from its beginning to the present. Los Angeles, raised in both Southern and Northern California, began playing music at a young age. Uh, you can go back and look at his bio. It's uh, chuckgerard.com, and uh, you get a lot of good information there. But I'm going to ask him a few stories that really touched me. And of course, his connection to the outpouring that happened in the late 60s in 1970, 71. Uh, there in Southern California, known as the Jesus Revolution, became known as the Jesus Movement. I've got some friends on the Zoom call portion of this today that we're recording that were part of those outpourings and also in Houston with Youthquake and beyond. So many great ministries were born out of the Jesus Revolution that uh, a lot of our relationships from Last Days Ministries, World Challenge, Calvary Commission, Agape Force, and on and on. And, you know, all those relationships that many of us have had over the years as a result of what God sovereignly did there at the, the Jesus Movement. So, Chuck, thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us today and looking forward to reconnecting some more and also uh, hearing from you about your perspective in light of the Jesus Revolution movie that, as you and I were talking, that is based on a true story. Of course, there's a lot of Hollywood license that's taken place, but the essence of it is God showed up, didn't he? Amen. Very good capsule review of the movie. It, uh, when I part started watching it the first time, I was really disappointed. Then I realized this is not a documentary, and this is Greg Laurie's story. And when I shifted gears there, then I began to enjoy it. I've seen it three times, and each time I enjoyed it more, and I recommend it to people. Uh, before we get too deep into the movie, I just want to say we need to also recognize old Ray Johnson, member Ray. Yes, Ray was instrumental back in the early days with Good Earth Concerts, and he had so many of the, the early Christian artists into Houston and sometimes Dallas. 
And just so a little tip of the hat to Ray, and uh, he's still alive and kicking. We talk once in a while, so I just wanted to give props to Ray. Back to the movie, yeah, it was, you know, uh, there was obviously things that that were, you know, factually disturbing, uh, but overall, if you just look at it as a great story about uh, a pastor uh, with this hippie thing coming into his life, it's a very powerful movie and great evangelistic movie, and I encourage people to bring their friends to it because people are going to get saved with this movie. Well, you know, I found that being at my age and many people I've talked to that literally got choked up during times of the movie because I think the hunger in our hearts to see God move again, that movie, at least in the essence of the story of and the birthing of a movement like that in a very difficult time in our nation, much like we have today, resonated with some of us. And I think it just caused a lot of us to really go deep and to take personal reflection or review and say, God, do something like that again, or in a different way, but just do it. And of course, the movie coming out right after the Asbury outpouring that happened again in Kentucky, and we've seen pockets of that. And I think over 200 different locations and youth gatherings and campuses are having some element of, of this hunger for God that's showing up across the country. Yes. Well, there's a lot of reports of that connection on Facebook, people that are talking about being very touched by it, most of the ones who lived through it, but even some of the you know younger people that, because it's just a powerful story. And I think they did a great job with that side of it, the emotional pull. Before we come into what happened there that really sparked this great movement that we were all affected by, and I alluded to this a moment ago, that many great outpourings, at least in the context in America in the last couple hundred years, came during times of difficulties or stormy things going on in our nation or in the world. You know, we can go back all the way to the Haystack prayer meetings in the early 1800s and and all the way up to the Welsh revivals in, in Wales. And of course, what happened here in America, and then fast forward to the Billy Graham era and the Atlanta Rain era. And then you look at the context of the Vietnam War and in Haight-Ashbury and the hippie movement and and there was such a, a resistance to the man, to the uh, resistance to uh, order. And there was an element of anarchy that was taking place, the anti-establishment that we all were kind of pushing back from. Drugs and, you know, free lifestyle and sex and rock and roll and all these things. It was with that, with Vietnam, with, with divisiveness and racism, all that came to a culmination moment. But yet it, it was interesting how God in that kind of environment what seemed humanly impossible poured out his spirit. Uh, where were you at in that process? Because obviously I read part of your book, what we'll talk about in a little bit. You were actually on the way and God had you arrested to keep you from probably going over the top in some areas. But tell us a little bit about your personal testimony. What kind of preceded sure. you ending up in California and doing what you did during the Jesus movement? Sure. Well, I was not really very politically aware I'll speak for myself. I was aware of uh, what was going on in the world and in the United States, but today I follow it much closer, much, much closer. And I know what politics, how it fits into the, you know, spiritual scheme of things in the Bible. But back then that wasn't such a deal. What happened to me was I had heard about these hippies and I was curious about them. I got a chance to get a hold of some drugs. I had been into alcohol before that, but uh, I'd never tried marijuana or any other drugs. And when I came, finally got a, uh, somewhere down the road, I got a cap of acid. And that's what kind of turned me because there's this counterfeit spiritual experience that goes along with psychedelics and even marijuana, in my opinion. 
a lot of people are excusing it now, even as Christians, but to me, it's still a spiritual doorway. And you have to be very careful when you mess it around with that kind of stuff. You know, I was uh, curious and I took LSD and all of a sudden I I realized there was more to life than just the earth life. And I, I for, for me, it said I need to seek God. And so uh, we thought that uh, when I say we, eventually I hooked up with a, a number of other like-minded seekers. This is a very long story squeezed into a very short time. And um, we, we thought that... Uh, Drugs were part of God's key to spirituality because it took courage to take drugs. And then when you did, you got to see this special thing that was happening. So that was kind of how we how we labored under that idea for like first. I don't know how long we the quest was two and a half, three years, something like that. Then eventually, toward the end of it, we realized, hey, you know, it's cool to get high on a, on a substance. But I want God. Now, we hadn't found God yet. We were still looking, but we had narrowed everything. We were reading Eastern philosophies. We were reading all the different Timothy Leary and New Age this and that. We were really leaning toward the Bible. And toward the end, you know, if you ask me what my religion was, I said, well, I'm mostly Christian, <laughs> you know, which you can't really be. But that was kind of my attitude. I had to narrow it down to something that included Jesus. And then everything started to fall apart. We were living in Laguna Beach in an idyllic setting in a beautiful home overlooking the Pacific Ocean and uh, a bunch, about eight of us in a little hippie commune, self-formed hippie commune. We were, there was nobody over us. We, we just a bunch of guys living together. We started to get arrested. We were playing in nightclubs and we got busted in the nightclub. All of a sudden we're facing, you know, the dream is over, as John Lennon wrote later. And uh, where do we go from here? Uh, I spent a day, uh, I spent some time in Orange County Jail. Uh, I, I was busted in Las Vegas and I was awaiting trial. And uh, we, so we, we would always pick up hitchhikers along Pacific Coast Highway. And we were in this dark place. And you usually pick up hitchhikers back in those days to get free weed or whatever. You know, you pick them up and they have a lid and they give you a joint. Now we're picking up kids and they're saying, uh, hey, man, we found Jesus. And, you know, we, we, you know, we'd say, well, we're looking for him. Where'd you find him? And we continued to hear about Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel, all these kids that hooked up at Calvary Chapel. And it was just God, you know, putting them in our path so that we would hear about Calvary Chapel. We were in our little commune house there one night, and we would read the Bible all the time under the influence of drugs. And we happened to be in the passage where they were talking about speaking in tongues. Now, to really tell the story, I have to back up just a little bit. I used to take my guitar up above the house and look at the ocean and I'd get stoned. And I used to sing in what I call free form, which was just making up words. A couple of times I did it, it drew very dark feeling. I didn't recognize it as the devil or anything, but I thought, whoa, this isn't good. And I'd stop and go into the house. And I stopped doing that because it was, to me, a negative thing. So I couldn't even figure out why tongues was in the Bible, because to me, it was dark. So we decided we knew that there was a Christian house down in uh, Newport Beach called the Blue Top where Lonnie Frisbee was the elder. We didn't know Lonnie at the time, but we said, well, those guys have already, you know, they're identifying as Christians and they're more Christians than we are. Let's go down there and ask them about tongues. So we drove the 15 miles down to the Blue Top. We knocked on door number one and a bunch of hippies greeted us with loving faces, but also surprised. What are these five guys doing on our doorstep with the Bible in their hands asking about tongues? And they took us in and they loved on us. You know, I, we never did talk about tongues in the Bible, but, you know, they were telling us about their church and their loving pastor, Chuck Smith, and you'll love him and you should go up and see the church. So that was my first exposure to Calvary Chapel. 
again, not really politically aware, but that was sort of a real thumbnail sketch of my spiritual journey. We went to Hawaii. We thought we were the 12 disciples uh, reincarnated, and we thought that the New Jerusalem was going to be on the island of Kauai. So we moved over there. We sold all our possessions because it said to do that in Matthew 6. And we were true hippies. I mean, we were really trying to live off the land in Hawaii. And uh, of course, all that stuff comes to nothing, you know. And so eventually it burns out and we come back to the mainland and we wound up in Laguna Beach. And that's where we hooked up with Calvary Chapel. Chuck, I've got a sidebar here. First time I ever went to Kauai, I didn't believe the story, but people that were like leftovers of the hippie generation said that the song that we used to sing, Puff the Magic Dragon, that I thought was a children's song, was actually written about Hanalei, Kauai, where the fog would come in and out, look like a dragon's mouth, but all the hippies, that was the farthest place they can get from mainland America, and they wanted to go over there, and that's where they would get high and 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 puff, you know, they called the, the magic dragon, you know, their joints and, and watch the fog. Sure. Well, Peter, Paul and Mary, I think deny that. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> they always deny when it comes down to it, you know, like Lucy in the sky with diamonds to me is still a reference to LSD. So yeah, I, that made sense to me. In fact, we lived in Hanalei for a while. And mm-hmm. so we felt really cool, man, we're in the land of puff the magic dragon, man. <laughs> so it was cool. Yeah. We related to that song. Well, going back even before then, because when you were young, you started a band at an early age and and you called your group the Castells and you had actually a couple of top 20 hits during that time. Tell us a bit about that is correct, sir. Tell us a little bit about that journey and how you got into music and and why, you you know, music became your outlet. Sure. Well, I was my age now. I'm I'm pushing 80, believe it or not. And uh, I always felt kind of cool that I was born in the timeline of rock and roll. When I was 15, 16, I was old enough to get interested in music. And the first music that was out there was like the early rockabilly and the stuff that was developing to begin to become rock and roll. And then Elvis hit the, hit the scene and um, I was hooked. You know, I loved the sound. I loved Elvis's voice. So I started getting into it. My older sister was into doo-wop and she was bringing home doo-wop records and I was listening to those. So I got bit by that bug and I, I started, a, a girl came to our house. I was about 10 or 11 at this time. And I lived in San Francisco and she played the chords to heart and soul bump. And I felt like the key to the universe was unlocked. And I started to write my own songs, practice on the piano and, and tried to, you know, write some music. I wasn't very successful at it, but at least play it. When I got in high school, we decided to put a little group it wasn't a band in those days it was just a vocal group and we started the group out of choir class and there was four of us that started the castells we were in, in high school so we we put together other people's songs we had a, i think one song that i wrote and we started to play for different events around town and we met this dj we used to go up to the uh, transmitter uh, he'd be alone up there working and we'd go up there where he's on the air and we kind of tell in between songs we say play this next and we kind of became program managers of the station while we were there. He had some connections. He said, I can get you on a show with Sano and Johnny. Now, Sano and Johnny was a duo instrumental that had a a group that had a song called Sleepwalk that a lot of people have heard. So we were on that show in Santa Rosa, California at the Veterans Memorial. I was in Santa Rosa High School at the time. Then this DJ said, "Uh, why don't you guys make a demo? I've got some connections in Hollywood. So we did. We went to San Francisco. We spent $100 on a little demo with uh, 
our piano and barely anything on the demo. We went down to Hollywood and we knocked on some doors. We got a record contract with a label called Era Records that had been really kind of on an upswing at that time. They had a number of records on the charts and they signed us. And so uh, we went into the very famous studio called Gold Star with people called the Wrecking Crew that some of the musicians will know what I'm talking about. I had the, the best musicians in Hollywood playing on our records. It was a little bit uh, refined for us. We considered ourselves to be more like an R&B type group. We weren't. You know, the records became a little more polished and they put strings on them and stuff. But the records were released and two of the songs hit top 20 on the Billboard charts. Well, that's a thrill no matter what. You know, it's just great to hear your song on the radio and be on the charts. So that was how I got into that whole side of things. And that group lasted just a couple of years. We went to a couple of different labels and then eventually it dissolved. And I got into surf music and worked with uh, a guy that had co-written a song with Brian Wilson called In My Room that people would remember. And I did hot rod surf music for about four years as a studio rat. Just a guy coming in for work for hire, you know, and seeing all these sessions. But we were working all the time, making lots of money for young guys. And uh, there was a song that came out of that called Little Honda by the Hondells. First year, it's all right. And I was the lead vocalist on that song. That's a little more famous than our Castell songs. But that's how I got into music. And then when the Beatles came in, it changed the whole face of music. And all of these studio type groups were, everybody was looking for bands now, self-contained bands. They lost interest in what we were doing and it kind of petered out. And so... I, I left that scene because there was no scene anymore and started doing, you know, bar bands. And that was the beginning, kind of tying into where we started when we started looking for God. And uh, we were musicians. So all the guys up in the house were musicians. Maybe one or two weren't, but about eight guys, six of us were musicians. And so that kind of ties in those two stories. But that's how I got started. It's a big thrill to have records on the radio as a young guy. I was on shows with people, you know, I was on shows with people like Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, my eyes were popping out. I'm on stage, I'm not on stage, but I'm on the same show as Jerry Lee Lewis and Brenda Lee and Bobby V and Jackie Wilson and all these people. So it was like, you know, a dream for a kid that used to just listen to these 45s. That was my life to listen to this pop music and listen to pop radio. So that was a big thrill. And uh, that was the beginning of my music. You know, that, at that time, a career. Now it's a ministry, but uh, that's how I got started. And it was a thrill, you know, just really pleased with that part of my life. All the addictions and stuff came with it, but uh, it was still a really nice time in my life. Well, you had mentioned Brian Wilson. He had worked with the Beach Boys, too, didn't he? And he worked with you guys. Well, Brian was the Beach Boys. He was the lead singer. Actually, how I met Brian was through our manager. We we had, Castells had kind of lost their mojo. And Brian had put out word that he was looking for groups to produce outside of the Beach Boys. And so our manager's secretary was a girl who was in a group with Brian's wife. So she contacted Brian, and he knew of us. He knew our songs. And he agreed to produce our record. And so we only made one song with him, but it got me introduced to him. We made a song called I Do by the Castells. Then I lost touch with him for a little while. We used to have a baseball league and we played baseball with Brian Wilson and Jan and Dean and Bruce Johnson and all those guys. Then after the hippie days, kind of, uh, you know, when the hippie days started, I lost touch with Brian. But I had a pretty good run with Brian for a while. When when we would do, when Gary started hiring me for these work for hire sessions, some of the songs were Brian's and he would come into the studio on two songs we actually sang together on the same song, sang lead. I was listening to an interview that your daughter, Lisa, did 
who used to be the Zoe girl. And she did an interview with you. It was really great because it was so good to see you and your daughter bantering back and forth and reminiscing. You mentioned something about your time with even work with Leon Russell, Chuck Berry. Of course, you mentioned Jerry Lee Lewis. But then you mentioned there was a young kid that met you in the studio and then he remembered you and you didn't remember him. His name was Keith Green. Tell us about that story. Yeah, well, you took the punchline from me here. Oh, (laughs) No, I always tell this story. This was when I worked for Gary Usher. Yes, it was. And Gary was uh, branching out, trying to find artists. And he found this young kid. I always, I don't identify the kid until, you know, the punchline. It was Keith Green. And uh, he was about 13. And we came into the studio. We didn't know who he was. Uh, It was just another session for us. Uh, We learned his songs and we started to record and, he came in with his dad, and he was very self-assured, okay? He was great, too. He was really talented. He could play the piano, just almost like he could, you know, back when he became Keith Green, the adult. So anyhow, that was my connection with him, and I remembered his name, but I didn't think he'd remember me. And then years later, when I became a Christian, one of the things that happened in my life was that a little Bible study started in my living room with Ken Gullickson and became the Vineyard. It was a house meeting for a while, and then uh, other house meetings and different places we we met. And then finally, uh, Ken Gullickson found a church, and we started the actual church. And Keith Green got saved there. I kept hearing from people in the congregation. They'd come up and say, hey, a guy named Keith Green got saved, says he knows you. And I thought, well, the only Keith Green I know is that little 13-year-old. And then I realized, well, now he's 23. He's not 13. So anyhow, we connected and he had remembered me. I don't know why, you know, because I was just one of the three or four guys singing background on his records. So we connected. I actually helped him get started because he wasn't known yet. If I had someone ask me for a a date and I had it booked, I'd refer them to him. I say, well, this young guy named Keith Green, he can do it. And then sometimes he opened for me until his uh, his name skyrocketed, and then uh, I got I got left in the dust because he became extremely popular very quickly. But yeah, it was a great little connection because it was, uh, it was so much fun to uh, work with him as a kid, and then and then get to know him as an older adult. Those records can be found on YouTube too. Those the Keith Green records you can probably find them somewhere on Decca label. Well, it's amazing how in this last few years. A lot of people, younger people that maybe didn't know who Love Song was or hadn't heard your songs or hadn't heard Keith Green, there seems to be a, a resurrection of a lot of that where people begin to sing it as if they think you guys are a young group again because the music is starting to recirculate. And I think even with the movie that just came out, lots of people are talking about some of your music again. And when you formulated Love Song, tell us of that journey and how you ended up at Calvary Chapel and became a part of the revival that broke loose there with Lonnie and with Chuck Smith. And and you guys were one of the primary bands that was a part of that. Yeah, well, let's back up a little bit, back still to the days when we were kind of playing the nightclubs as hippies. I think we started playing, I know we did, I just don't know when it was. We played as a love song before we were Christians. We had moved to Salt Lake City, and Jay Truex had moved back there, our bass player, and he had put together a little power trio. They were with an agency in Salt Lake City, and the agency would book all the big concerts with people like Janis Joplin and Three Dog Night, and they'd always put Jay's group on Spirit of Creation as the opening uh, act. I came back there, a really long story, it's all in my book. I came back there to be with Jay. He invited me to join his band. It didn't work out, but I, it brought me to Salt Lake City. 
after then they, their band disbanded finally, and we put together a rather large family type band called Love Song. And we played at this amazing club called the Old Mill that was just that, some old kind of a, either a grist mill or something. It was all stone, and of course with the you know it almost looked like a castle inside, and with the strobe lights and everything, it was quite cool for the kids that came to the nightclub. So we played there, and we became the house band there. Then somebody heard about our music in Hollywood, believe it or not. Oh, I think the agent did it. The agent took took some of our music and sent it to somebody in Hollywood at Liberty Records, and they sent a talent scout out to uh, check out our music because we had this song that I'd written called Lead Me Out of California back in the days when everybody was thinking California was going to fall into the ocean. And I wrote this song about the Lord lead me out of California, earthquake coming any day, maybe take me to Hawaii, anywhere you send me is okay. And he came back and he heard that song and he said, that could be a hit. So they were going to sign us. Anyhow, that finally did, I won't labor on that. It, that fell apart. We never did sign with them. But uh, that's when we first played his love song. And then we moved back the next step. We came back to where, where we were in Laguna Beach there, right? So that's kind of in the middle of all the stories I've told you already. So then when we started picking up the kids, that were hitchhiking and hearing about Calvary. I went up one night by myself. The guys had gone up. We'd all gone up at different times in different combinations, but I, I had held off because I didn't want Christianity. I had been raised in a Christian denomination, and I had thrown that away. I, I don't want that. I want to. I want to find God somewhere up on a mountain where a guru says we're on our way. So, but I felt like if I'm a really open-minded seeker, I need to do this. I need to go and check this out because all these hippies are talking about it. So I I went to the church. It took me about five times. Calvary was uh, in Santa Ana. There was in a vineyard, big thing of vineyards there, and a really long drive, or maybe four, maybe two miles around the get around the block, you know, to get around Calvary's block, maybe a little less. But so anyhow, I drove around about four times till I got my courage up, and I just decided, okay, park the car, go in, and let's check this out and get it over with. So I sat in the back seat so I could make my escape. And Chuck Smith was teaching that night, not Lonnie. And, but I heard this music. These kids would get up and they would, you know, sit on a stool and sing the song that, quote, God gave them last night. And uh, it was touching me really deeply. I didn't know about the anointing or the Holy Spirit. I just knew that this music was that I felt was kind of substandard to what I've been listening to because I was kind of a musical snob. I like, you know, Pink Floyd and groups like that. So I couldn't figure out why I was being so deeply moved. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just took a hold of me and uh, sh- shook me up, really, you know, just started to really minister to me. And I, ne- I think it's important here to tell you that my philosophy at that time, be- where I was at in my spiritual journey was that there were songs like John Lennon, I'm in you and you're in me and we are all together. And I felt like before any person could be totally saved. All people had to be saved. So you had to do your part and live the best you could. And we were not into free sex and all that stuff. And we were doing the drugs, but we thought they were good. So we were trying to live moral lives. And all of a sudden I realized that that's not true. It's a one-on-one thing. And um, God just spoke to my heart and this burden lifted off me. And I, I felt just, you know, this deluge of God's love come into my, I mean, I was laughing and crying. I don't know what they thought on the back seat there. Then they had the altar call. I didn't go to the front to the altar call. I just said, well, God, 
you know, this looks like something I, I need to look into. You know, I'm, I'm going to be here till you tell me to look back, you know, to tell me to leave because I felt like if it was just a stepping stone, God would be faithful enough to move me into the next level or whatever. But that's the night I believe I got born again and I never looked back after that. And, you know, my faith just got stronger in my knowledge because of Chuck Smith of the Word. But how we got to play at Calvary was it's not like in the movie. In the movie, Lonnie, the Lonnie character, comes into Chuck's house and says, well, Chuck, I met these guys at a coffee shop and we're playing in Chuck's living room. And we never played in Chuck's living room that I remember. But uh, what happened was we were going to Calvary. We were several of us were three, four weeks old in the Lord. And we, we'd heard Lonnie preach. We loved Lonnie. He looked like Jesus. And we thought, wow, he looks like Jesus. We looked like, uh, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash or something. Our music would be a good fit here. Let's go see if the pastor will let us play. So we went, went into Chuck's office and uh, we asked if we could talk to Chuck and Pastor Chuck took us out to the sanctuary and he asked us to give our testimonies, which we did. At the end of it, uh, oh, by the way, I have to insert this, about 2010, 2011, we, we, we toured with Chuck again and we had a lot of intimate conversations. He told me, he says, you know, when you guys came in the sanctuary that day, there was no way I was letting you play, because <laughs> you know, you're baby Christians with long hair and drums. But at the end of the interview, he asked us to play a song. So we played Welcome Back. In fact, I know it was Welcome Back. And again, the Holy Spirit just doused him. And the next thing we heard was, can you guys play tonight? That was a huge, successful you know, audition. And uh, the meetings were always at 7. And we said, well, Chuck, our guitar player gets out of jail. On, he's serving weekends, doing weekends at Orange County Jail. But he gets out at 6. So we'll go collect him, and we'll be here at 7. And we were. And we played that night, Lonnie spoke, and I'm not saying because Love Song was there, but it seemed to me, you know, when I looked back on it, in place to, to have this groundswell of salvation among hippies. And when we started playing, uh, that church grew from about 300, 250, 300 people to about 2,000 in four months. Wow. Hippies were, were telling their friends in the droves, we had altar calls you wouldn't believe, 50, 60% of the congregation would come front to the front to receive Jesus for the first time. So they had to move into the tent at that time because they couldn't accommodate them any longer. And we were getting in trouble with fire marshals because everybody was sitting in the aisles. So they put the tent up, which by the way, was not white. It was a, a green tent. It was just a funky old tent, but it held about 2000 people. And that's where we had meetings until they raised the money to build the church that's there today. So that's how we got started. And then we thought we were just, house band at Calvary. Media began to emerge on Calvary. They, they realized the photo op there, so to speak, right? They saw hippies and straight people. We call them straight, but I mean, not hippie people. And uh, a not hippie pastor and a hippie preacher. And they saw the publicity uh, possibilities of that. So they would come down to Calvary. I mean, we had major Life magazine, Look Magazine, the big Newsweek and all that stuff, uh, ABC, NBC, all came to do stories on the Jesus movement. Well, a lot of times our band was playing and we'd be in those articles. So our star rose very quickly, very quickly. And we started to play other places in Calvary. And uh, we started doing schools and everything. We, we never said no if we could play. Sometimes we played three times a day. We, we were our own roadies. We brought our own equipment in. We broke it all down. We'd have lunch, go back to it in the afternoon, have a concert in the evening for almost like a year. It was like that. It was like, you know, not, not every day, but for 
big, huge clusters of time in it. We would be playing that many times, and we were all in it for God, and we just wanted to evangelize our our generation. So we we didn't turn on any opportunities. We were kind of in a great position because an empty nester couple had uh, invited us to stay in their home, and they supported us for a year while we got on our uh, on our way in our ministry. So we wouldn't have to worry about rent and food and all that stuff. But Dean and Jean Gilbert, they're both deceased and they were our parents for a little while our our pseudo parents so that that was kind of how we got started in more of the national ministry we toured the nation at least one big tour and a lot of little jaunts out to this this city or three city tour or whatever so we did a lot of uh touring then uh, in that those next couple of years well there's a lot of things that you've been sharing too that are in your book called rock and roll preacher from doo-wop to Jesus Rock, Chuck Gerard, a pioneer of contemporary Christian music. I got the download on it. Started, I mean, I downloaded it from Kindle. I've been reading it. Very candid, very honest. You really weave a lot of story in there from the early days all the way to and through Jesus movement. A question came up that someone has asked me to ask you. How did you end up writing the song, Hear the Angels Sing? Yeah, okay, that's a good story. Sometimes I don't remember a thing about how I wrote a song, but here's what happened on that one. I was solo ministry at that time. I was out of love song, and uh, a lot of times I just do piano concerts. You know, I didn't. Sometimes I took a band, but I did a lot of stuff solo. I believe it was a solo concert. I can't remember where it was, but after the concert, a really old man. Now he's probably my age. How I am now, but it was old to me. He came up and he said, he handed me a piece of paper and walked away. So I put it in my pocket, forgot about it. And then when I got back to the hotel or where I was staying, sometimes private homes, uh, I took it out and it said the first lines of that song. I can almost hear that city, uh, see that city standing there beyond that hill, the city made for living in the Father's will. And I thought, wow, this is great imagery. This is out of Revelation. So I took that little four-line start. He didn't put his name there or his phone number. I might have given him a writing credit if he had, but he just wanted me to have something. And people hand you that stuff all the time, and sometimes it's something of value to you, and other times it's not. But uh, I just thought that was a great line, and I went to Revelation, and I took a bunch of the uh, images out of Revelation. And the chorus came, and uh, that's how the song, you know, you go to the piano and you work it out. And uh, I started with those four lines. So somewhere that little man gets a reward in heaven because he helped me write that song. Wow. Well, you know, I was thinking about something you said about just the attention that Time Magazine and so many others gave during the outpouring there that started what we call the Jesus Revolution or Jesus Movement. And I think about even how Rolling Stone in 1971 quotes you and talks about you there as well. And then I remembered even our my my friend Steve Hill, the evangelist who's gone to be with the Lord, and the outpouring that they had at the Pensacola Revival. And there are moments in time where there are undeniable things that are taking place that maybe the world doesn't understand, but they do recognize it's, it's spiritual and it's undeniable. Magazines like Time Magazine back then, or Rolling Stone, then and with the, what happened at Brownsville a Revival, and, and even some things that I was involved in that they tried to come and to be critical of the large prayer gatherings that we were hosting for people to cross racial, denominational, generational lines. And the more they came to be critical, they were more and more moved by it. I remember one time Rolling Stone said to me, so is this like a new movement? I said, no, this is what real Christians do. And so they were like, yeah, 
So they, were, they began to do a lot of research. And because of that, the person that was uh, that was hired to write the story couldn't write the story that they were sent to write because they saw a whole different perspective. And they were self-proclaimed agnostic and yet were so touched. Things like the Jesus movement, things like these other things, sometimes even the world recognizes they might be questioning it, but it's undeniable that something spiritual is taking place. Do you right. sense that we're on the precipice of something like that again? You know, I've been asked that question for the last seven or eight years. Let me tell you my view on it, and then I'll tell you my comment on what's going on right now with Asbury and all that real quick. But uh, when I first started getting the question, I would just say something like, yeah, I'd love to God to do it again. Then it occurred to me, uh, this is in my book as well, uh, I began to think about it, and I thought, you know, I think God will move. Of course, God God never stops moving, so let's forget that. But when you talk about we view things through our American lens. So we think a revival is in America, but there are revivals for a long time and all over the world. There's persecution all over the world, but we tend to see things through our American lens. And so we're kind of thinking, you know, when is a revival going to happen again? We're talking about America. Well, what was unique about the Jesus movement was that it was maybe the first time in history that, at least for sure, the first time that so many people were influenced and driven by one counterculture, the hippie counterculture. And then the hippie counterculture was driven by the music. We thought the Beatles were prophetic voices and Bob Dylan and all that. So we're listening to all that music for secret messages. It's really interesting that wherever people were spiritually seeking, to me, it all came to a head the late part of the 60s. It was all kind of crashing down around the hippies and everything. And everybody was looking for where's the next place to go spiritually because all these other people have let us down. So that's where I believe the spiritual preparation uh, all over for, for people who are being drawn by the same uh, music, the same voices, the same spiritual teachers like Timothy Leary, fake, you know, counterfeit spiritual teachers uh, were all brought to the same point of disillusionment. And then when God uh, tripped the switch on the Jesus movement, it was low hanging fruit. Everybody was ready to drop right into the kingdom of God and find Jesus. It was the next and ultimate step. Well, I feel it's different now because we don't have, you know, now we have all kinds of subcultures of, of counterculture. We have the skinheads and white supremacists and uh, goths and there's all categories. So I don't see God doing it that way again. I don't really have a prophetic statement about it, but um, all of these Torontos and uh, Brownsville's and Asbury's, are kind of what could be, you know, okay, there's flaws in all of it, okay? And my daughter, Elisa Childers, uh, speaks to this. That's really her ministry. And she's got that book out called uh, Another Gospel, where she uh, talks about all these kind of things, the things we need to be careful about when we talk about revival. One, One distinction I'll make, Asbury and Toronto, and even Brownsville, now I was Lyndall Cooley, who was the worship leader at Brownsville, was my pastor for three years. So I know a lot about Brownsville, and I know that was a very sincere, genuine move of God. They were all more uh, charismatically based, signs and wonders and all that stuff. What was different about Calvary, uh, what happened at Calvary was it was word-based. Chuck really didn't allow, or the Holy Spirit didn't try to bring forth very much uh, spiritual... um, charismatic type, you know, people speaking in tongues or falling down under the power of God in those meetings. We came for Bible studies. We came to hear the Word. 
And there were always altar calls. And that was the secret of that whole revival, because everybody emulated what was happening at Calvary Chapel to a degree. It was the preaching of the word. So what's happening today? The only caution I say is that, as you may know, when you go, what I like about Facebook and my Facebook page in particular is I have maxed out my personal page to 5,000, but they're all people that started out like me. I've had my page about 20 years, and I can get the temperature of the church by just going through Facebook posts. I don't respond back hardly ever because I don't think Facebook is a place for dialogue. It never works out, but I like to listen to what people are here, read what people are saying. There are a lot of people questioning what's going on in, in these different uh, revivals and things, and uh, we need to be cautious because there are some dangers that come in when so much of it is based on emotion. I'm not saying it's not genuine. I'm not, not saying that it's not great, but uh, a little more reason for caution before we get too carried away with calling it something. Don't call it something, you know. In fact, I encourage everybody to watch a podcast by my daughter, Elisa Childers. It's C-H-I-L-D-E-R-S. If you go on YouTube and then you put in the Asbury, what comes up that you should listen to is my daughter is interviewed by a podcaster. There's another guest. I think he's taught or spoken at the school, but also the dean of the seminary is interviewed along with my daughter. And they talk about the movement that's going on right now. And my daughter brings up some salient points that should be considered. Mostly, she says, these are questions we should be asking. She's not criticizing or putting it down, but she is saying we need to view with caution. So how is it going to happen in the end times? I don't know. I have people who think there'll be false revivals. There's false uh, salvations. You know, I look at everything my personal viewpoint is. I used to be a little bit more in the in the uh, in the area of warning people, and I still warn people about stuff I know is happening. Because there's a, a what I'm going to say about Facebook is there's a lot of weird stuff people are into in the church. There's people that are cessationists, and you know they don't believe in the gifts of the spirit anymore. People don't believe there's hell, and uh, so you got to be really careful about all that stuff. How it's going to be at the end times, I don't really know. Here's what God told me, okay? Because I was involved and I, I have to warn the church. I have to be. And God said, look, just you can warn people, but you can't change the church. So just he brought me to the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he said that it'll all grow up at once and there'll be genuine things happening in the middle of it. I'll use it all. That's what I thought God said. I'll use because, well, let me go back in a minute. But I'll finish this statement first. I'll use it all and then in the end, separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, well, oh, I forgot my thoughts, so let's just move ahead. Okay. But that's that's my kind of uh, that's my feeling on the revival right now. You can't change people's minds. You can input to them, and you could cause them to think, but they have to make their own decisions about what's real and what's not, and what they choose to believe and what's not. I think sometimes on the swing of the pendulum, we go to one side thinking that God isn't doing anything because. We question everything, and then we swing the other side that we anything goes, and there's no sense of discernment. And yet we look at the scripture that says it takes oxen to get the job done, but if you're going to use the oxen, the beast of burden, then the trough is going to get a little dirty. So I think that, like you said, discernment, right. letting God sort out the wheats and the tares. I'm looking for hunger, and I Winky Prattney was on one of our calls and did one of our podcasts. Uh, he's in New Zealand, obviously now, but. Um, we were talking about how he said, you know, I think too often we're seeking for revival 
Rather, we should be seeking the revival giver. And there is a distinction. Right. Too many times we worship the worship rather than worshiping the one who's worthy of our worship. And so I think what you're saying is true. We need to, and in fact, it was even Smith Wigglesworth of all people that uh, before he died in 1947 said that the great revival will come when the ministry of the word is connected to the ministry of the spirit. And that's so true. I've seen people that really have a hunger for the word, but also open to the Holy Spirit tend to be uh, deeper in their balance, but also more open for God to do things in a very uh, powerful way. I've been getting a lot of questions, and it's interesting, the people that have seen the Jesus Revolution movie, the first thing they do is they want to go find out about Lonnie Frisbee. And so they go Google. With Google, you get all this other kind of stuff. So we won't get into all of that. But I liked what uh, Lee Grady, in fact, he and I were texting today, used to be the senior editor from Charisma Magazine and Ministries Today. And uh, he said that Lonnie Frisbee was deeply flawed yet God used him powerfully. And I thought that in a starting statement, that was so good. And he kind of lays out a lot of really practical things and and the process. But it took, you know, God using a guy who just got radically saved, who believed in God, like Keith Green used to say, get bananas for Jesus, just on fire for the Lord. And in his flaws, God was able to use him. And as a result, all of us really have benefited from the Jesus movement, as well as you, because as you said, you know, you you were in coffee shops and you were doing different clubs and and uh, and you were all connected. And obviously he had a huge impact in that movement, along with the word through Chuck Smith. And then you said that even the Vineyard Church before John Wimber got involved was starting your living room. So there was a lot of things God was doing organically. And yet there are some things in all of our lives that no matter how much we walk in God's giftings and calling, there are things that we still have to be honest in, and brutally honest with ourselves about. And, and you address that even in your own book about your own life. But tell us a little bit about your relationship with Lonnie and, and some of your thoughts on that. And, and in fact, I would recommend anybody to read this article by Lee Grady called uh, Jesus Revolution. Uh, yeah, Lonnie Frisbee was deeply flawed, yet God used him powerfully. If you want, I can email that to you or we can uh, forward that to you as well. Sure. Well, first of all, that guy that has the video out now about an hour long, Lonnie's best friend, I watched that last night. And that's got some great information because his relationship with Lonnie was after 1978. And I already lost touch with Lonnie at that time. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. His name is John something. And uh, if I just if you Google Lonnie Frisbee best friend, you'll probably find it. It's about an hour. Yes, John Rutke. My- R-U-T-T-K-A-Y is his last name, John Rutke. And uh, it's a, it's a right. great. Yeah, that's a, that's worth watching. So my history and my I'll give you my history, my Lonnie story, and then I'll tell you my conclusion on Lonnie. Uh, and my history was the first year of my Christian walk. So after that, I kind of lost track of Lonnie. I would hear reports about him and different things were happening in his life. But for the first six months to a year of our Christian walk, we were inseparable almost with Lonnie. We would go over to the blue top all the time. He'd take us out for drives and we'd talk about God and we, you know, never really did any official ministry in those things. We'd hang out at his house. I got baptized in the spirit in his house. So one day we're driving along. It was just Fred Field, our guitar player, our first guitar player, and me. And Lonnie used to drive this Lincoln Continental and he was embarrassed about it. Someone had given it to him. So he put a bumper sticker on the back, said, God provides, and it made him feel a little bit better. But we were in this Lincoln Continental, and he said, pull into this apartment complex in Newport Beach. We pulled into the parking lot, 
He said, go up to, uh, he said, Let, we're going up to part 14 or whatever it was, get your guitars and follow me. Well, we, it was only Fred and I and one guitar. So we followed him up the, the stairs and uh, he knocks on the door and the door opens and marijuana smoke wafts out and there's about 10, 12 hippies in there getting high. And they're looking at us like they are hallucinating. They can't believe what they're seeing is real. And then Lonnie comes in, no preparation, no, he says, we are servants of the most high God. And we have come here to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But first, Love Song is going to play, think about what Jesus said. So we're kind of almost, we're at the same thing. Our eyes are like, well, what's going on here? So we play the song, which says, uh, think about what Jesus said before you let your mind reject him. Listen to your heart instead, and you will accept him. So we finish the song, and Lonnie preaches for about three three to five minutes and gives an altar call, and two guys raise their hand. Well, uh, we left the apartment, and we went on, you know, whatever is still kind of all very new to us. And uh, so I kept seeing those guys at church for years. So about 30 years later, I'm playing at Calvary. I'm doing worship. I came to, I didn't live there anymore. I wasn't on staff. Chuck would just have me down once in a while to lead worship. And this guy comes up to me after the service. And he says, hey, I have a question I've been wanting to ask you for about 30 years. He says, how did you guys know we were up there that night? I had always assumed that Lonnie knew somebody or whatever. But uh, I can only conclude that Lonnie heard the Holy Spirit say, take these guys up to room 14 and wait for further orders, you know, or something like that. And Lonnie was like that. He just did things on an impulse. There's a great little testimony uh, about five guys getting saved at the beach that people can find too. That's really great. I, I enjoyed watching that. It's about 20 minutes long. I don't know what you would uh, search for, but Lonnie Frisbee testimony at the beach or something. So that's my Lonnie story. At Lon I just watched a little bit of Lonnie's funeral last night, too, because he's on everybody's mind, and I'd never seen the video of it. And what I said on that platform, when we played two songs at his funeral, I said, Lonnie taught me the ways of the Holy Spirit. And I really believe that that's his contribution to my life, because he taught me to be fearless, to hear the Spirit, and to be, uh, you know, to, to let God use me in that regard. I've never been a prophetic guy too much in that regard in my ministry, but but uh, I did learn how to move in the spirit, and a lot of it came from my association with Lonnie in those early days. So, conclusion, because everybody wants to know about AIDS and did Lonnie, was Lonnie homosexual and all that. Here's what I've landed on. When the Bible says that an adulterer shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, unless he's drinking, it's better. You know, some guy that got drunk a couple of times thinks, well, gee, I'm not going to heaven because... I must be a drunkard because I got drunk. But I think that's more about accepting and identifying with the lifestyle. If you're repentant, then God's faithful and just to forgive. And if you were a man who cheated on his wife and then you repent of it, and even if your marriage doesn't stay together, you, I don't think that God sees you as an adulterer. So I think repentance is the key here. And to every information I have about Lonnie, all information points to the idea that he was fully restored with God at the end. That's what that video from his best friend says. I do believe we'll see Lonnie in heaven, and I believe that he left behind a great legacy of powerful ministry and many souls that will be credited to his account, because I do believe that Lonnie was a man of God. How did he slip later? If he did, I don't know. Uh, there's some reports, you know, we've all heard these things. I've talked to Roger Sachs, who put his books together, 
And I think the key point in, in what Lonnie told Roger that are in his books is that he never identified as a homosexual. He never saw himself that way. So did he slip? I don't know. I think probably he did, but he repented and he was right with God when he died. So that to me is what matters. And that's how I land. I don't, I have to say this, that year I spent very close to him, lots of hours and sometimes in every day hanging around him for all that time. Not once did I ever see a, a, he was married to Connie. I never saw any glimmer of him looking sideways at a guy or anything like that. I never saw one thing like that from Lonnie in my personal experience. So that I can say without any reservation at all. Now, what happened to him after? The last time I'll close with this. The last time I saw Lonnie, he was bitter. I, it was a number of years later. I don't even remember where I saw him. He was really, really dark. I don't mean dark, dark. He was dark in his heart. His spirit seemed dark. He seemed very bitter and angry about the way he'd been treated. And it wasn't all the Lonnie that I knew back in the, uh, that first year in 1970. So I didn't know that he went through a lot of stuff. And, uh, I think that guy's video, uh, that John's video will be very interesting folks that hear what I'm saying now, because he goes into more detail about all this stuff. So that's it for Lonnie. I actually wish I'd, I think I put this in my book about Lonnie, but I think that what I just told you about, you know, repentance is the issue is, is the true issue. And I believe that Ron, Lonnie was repentant and restored to God when he died. Absolutely. And what I appreciate about a little bit that I read that he's written and even shared in the last couple, three years. And like you said, your friend that helped him put his books together, he never justified anything. He to the very end, he was an evangelist. He was still trying to point people to Jesus, regardless of where they'd come from, and tells you a lot about and him and even wanting to get restored with Chuck and with a lot of friends and different people he reached out to in his last couple of years. It just says a lot about the staying course of the Holy Spirit and God's hold on his heart and his life, even though he went through that deep, dark season of, of bitterness and things that got a hold of him. One of his books was on the autobiography it was called not by might nor by power. Talks a lot about firsthand experiences and and a part of the Jesus movement and so on. And Chuck, thank you so much. I mean, I can go on for a couple hours with you. I just thank you so much for taking the time with us. And if you have any final closing thoughts, and I'm going to have you pray for us. This is part of our Transforming Leadership live calls, and then we use it for our Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends podcast. It will come out in a few days as well. So if there's any closing thoughts or anything that you feel like you, you want to share with us, and then we're going to have us pray for you, and then you'll pray for us. Okay, well, I'm going to do a shameless plug here now for our documentary of the group Love Song that we've been working on for three years. We had no idea about the when the Jesus, we knew the Jesus Revolution movie was going to come sometime, but we've been putting together a definitive uh, uh, biography uh, film, you know, a documentary of our band's how we got started and our whole history and along with it, just like the Jesus revolution, you're seeing the Jesus revolution through the story of Greg and uh, Kathy. This is the Jesus revolution through our experiences, how we experienced it as, as one of the premier bands of the Jesus movement. So we're hoping to get this done to catch the wave off the end of the Jesus revolution, which maybe may or June, we hope we're trying. It's, Financed, it's a donation kind of thing, and we need to raise some more money. But uh, God's been very generous with us, and we've been able to do a top-notch job on it. It's 
pretty much settled, we're going to call it a band called Love Song. And so that will be coming out as soon as we can get it out. That's coming out. And then I'm also making my first studio album in 30 years with players. You know, I made a couple of worship CDs in between that were more live things and uh, a Christmas album. But I haven't made an album with studio players in 30 years. So that's coming out very soon, too. That's in the very final finishing stages now. And that could be out even in the next four to six weeks that could be out on Spotify and all that stuff. So just want people to keep uh, their eye out for these things. If you enjoyed the Jesus revolution, I think you'll enjoy our documentary and where the Jesus movement is heavily dramatized. And I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying, you, when you make a movie like that, you have to make certain adjustments. Ours is really just more like the raw facts, just the facts, man. And so we, we are really, vetting it to be really honest and true to what happened and i think people will really enjoy it so with that note i That's... also want to just tell people that you know it's just these are times where we need to be watchmen we need to be careful about everything that's out there i don't mean worried but i mean you know uh, know your enemy um be, be aware of the wiles of the devil that kind of thing so that's all i'm not i'm not i don't walk in fear and i don't walk in any kind of doubt but i do walk in awareness so that's that's my word for the folks i'm looking forward to your documentary because as you said it's a documentary is based on just trying to get the facts together and and from your purview and and even from the love song story and your involvement and the other Mm -hmm. the other thing i would encourage people to do is Please uh, download or get a copy of Rock and Roll Preacher, the book Chuck Gerard wrote, came out last year, and it's called Rock and Roll Preacher, From Doo-Wop to Jesus Rock, Chuck Gerard, a pioneer of contemporary Christian music. I couldn't even put it down. It was like in the middle of the night, and I'm thinking, I've got to go to sleep, and I just kept on reading and wanted to keep it. It reads that well. So I want to encourage people to do that. And, and again, Chuck, thank you so much. Well, let, let me mention too, real quick, Doug, if people want to see the trailer, it's it's not really a trailer. It's just sort of little uh, uh, excerpts from the movie. They can go to our, our, because Love Song is the hardest thing in the world to Google. So the, the website is called lovesongtheband.com. They can see the trailer there. Lovesongtheband, all one word, dot com. Great. And there's a few people I see on today with us that have been a part of the Jesus movement or part of Great Outpoints. Pam, I know Pam also, you're part of Youthquake and Buddy Hicks, who's gone to be with the Lord and and so many others that I'm seeing here, Skip and uh, Barbara Buckland, Marlene. So many of us have experienced either the Jesus movement or the aftershocks and the tremors that came from that. And we've all been uh, parts of pockets of what God has been doing. So thank you all. And, as a reminder, I just want to just say that historically, I believe that most outpourings or awakenings, or if you want to call them revivals, or moves of God have come in the midst of some of the most thunderous and difficult of times. But it's the church awakened that can bring healing and hope in the darkest of times. Recognizing we are not each other's enemy, there is a common enemy that would try to keep us from taking the message of the gospel. Uh, Jesus said, preach the kingdom. And so how can we preach the kingdom if we're spending time fighting each other when we need to be finding a way to go deeper in the Lord in consecration, higher in expectation, and just stay hungry for the Lord? And I'm reminded of Second Chronicles 5. It says that when you're in the holy presence of God, a holy, holy, holy God, then you can't come out according to division. You're lost in the holy presence of God that changes us in ways that only he can. Intellect cannot do it. Institutions cannot do it. 
We need an incarnational manifestation of the living God and a reverential, healthy respect for God's holiness. And so I thank each of you for your continued leadership in a time when so many are leaving the ministry, leaving their callings, be it marketplace or in the church uh, world. Uh, I encourage you, stay the course. We need your leadership more than ever before. This is our moment. This is not a time to lose this window of opportunity. Let's go after God with hungry hearts. Let God do a work in us so he can do a work through us. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to have us pray for Chuck as well. Father, I just thank you for this time that Chuck has given to us. I thank you for the, in many ways, I'm sure he doesn't recognize the significant impact and influence he has had because of his surrender to you and those that he worked with, not just because of the Jesus movement, but because of what you did in a handful of individuals that had a revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. And as we journey through all the disappointments and distractions, and and even where we have failed you in our frail humanity, you've still poured out your grace upon us as long as we keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. God, I'm asking you now to help us look past the circumstances in which we live, and to focus on the place of the destination you have given us, keeping our focus, our hope, and our vision on you. Because, Lord, you haven't stopped. You're still on the throne, and you're still looking for a people that you can pour yourself into and through. God, we need an awakening, an awakening in the church, so we can have a move of God across the land and around the world. God, that context may look different to different people, but we do know this, that we need a corporate manifestation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Even this last week, as I was sharing in a church of what you did in Bradford, in Haverhill, Massachusetts, that came out of an 1806 haystack prayer meeting in a thunderstorm in Boston, and ultimately in Haverhill, Massachusetts, Bradford College, that the first North American missionary was sent out from there, from that missions board, from just a handful of young college students that formulated that time together and became a a youth movement that went into the nations of the world. And today we see, Lord, again, in that very place, you've redug the wells of revival 200 years later in that very same location. And now you have brought together a Christian Bible college and school where there are hungry students longing for your presence, ready to go to the nations. If you can do it there, you can do it then. And you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're asking you to do that again. God, I pray for fresh anointing, Father, for right spirit, clean heart, sharp, stable mind for all of us, and that we would not let discouragement dictate to us who we are, but we would be encouraged in the Lord. I pray, Father, also for fresh anointing upon Chuck and his family. I pray, Father, for doors that would be opened again to bring forth that which you, we don't raise an altar to the past, but we look at landmarks to bring them to the present so we can have hope for the future. Thank you, Lord, for his family. Thank you for Chuck. Thank you for his investment in me personally in ways maybe he doesn't even know from the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, Lord. And I just thank you that he's been candid and honest with you and with others so we can all find hope in our journey as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. 
please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.